on these Sunday mornings uh, for the last several, except for last week when we paused for Mother's Day. We've been looking at the book of Romans, which I've entitled Paul's Letter to the 21st Century. And the reason uh, we make it Paul's Letter to the 21st Century is because the culture at Rome in the first century was much like our culture today. In Rome, uh, they loved art, they loved beauty, they loved architecture, uh, they uh, were passionate about athletics like our society today, they were passionate about sexuality, they were passionate about philosophy, uh, and they also, I did not know this until last week and in my preparation for the message last week, although we were not in Romans, I think it's appropriate to point out today that in first century Rome, they also were open and practiced abortion in that first century. So why isn't the message that Paul wrote to the Romans in the first century, why wouldn't it be relevant for the 21st century? Our society looks so much like Roman society then. And to that culture, Paul said these words in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He said to them, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, what must I do to be saved? Now, that's where we left off with our look at Romans, asking that question that was asked by a man who was a Roman citizen. He was a citizen of Rome, lived not in Rome itself, but in a Roman colony, the Roman colony of Philippi. He uh, was a jailer, and in a moment of... uh, in the providence of God, in a moment of, of, of difficulty, he came to see the helplessness and hopelessness of his own soul. He had been listening to Paul and Silas share the gospel and sing the gospel and pray the gospel, talking to God. And then he asked them, what must I do to be saved? As if there was some act that he needed to perform, some work that he needed to be formed. Now, This is not hard to misunderstand, but some people do. The man that asked this question seemed to have this misunderstanding. You'll notice I do is in bold print to emphasize what he needed to do. What step did he need to take? What gift did he need to give? What did he need to do to be saved? But in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul makes it clear that there is nothing you can do to be saved. This brings us to our second point, that salvation happens by God's power. Now, is there something that you need to do to add to what God has done? No, the only thing that you can do is believe the gospel. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now, and we said last time as we looked at this, that this is more than just raising your hand and saying, I believe something, and we use the table here as an example. So I ask you, if you believe this table is strong and it will hold you up, and you say, yes, I believe that, 
And many people approach the gospel in the same way. And they say, yes, I believe. They come down the aisle and say, oh, I believe. The table is strong. They might even write a commitment card and say, lay it on the table and say, yes, I believe the table is strong. But that's not the kind of believing that the Bible talks about. The kind of believing the Bible talks about is climbing up on the table and trusting the table to hold you up. It is trusting your heart and your soul into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in what he did on the cross for your salvation. That's why Paul said, what must you do to be saved? He said, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Here's number three. Salvation comes to a person who believes the gospel. Anything that you think you must add to that, in fact, question God's power and God's plan, and it's not believing the gospel, it's believing something else. Why is that important? Well, it's important because many people in the church, in the church, members of the church, have never believed the gospel. They believe something else. They believed, for instance, in baptism. As a matter of fact, there's some churches that teach that baptism is essential to salvation. And if you ask them, what must I do to be saved? They will say, be baptized. That's essential to salvation, but that's not salvation. If it is, Paul sure missed it here in his message to the Romans. He forgot to add that step. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus did on the cross. If it's in some act of mine or in some step of mine or in some goodness of mine, that's not the gospel. That is, that is something that I think that I must do. The gospel, the power of God and the salvation is the gospel and salvation comes to those who believe, who put their hope, who hang their hope in their heart in what Jesus did on the cross. So what did you believe? Did you believe that by joining the church you were saved or that by being baptized that you were saved or walking down the aisle you were saved? If that is what you believe, then you are not saved because salvation comes by the power of God and his power alone through what Jesus did on the cross and that alone. So next, what is this power? How does it work? How is it effective for me? How is it effective in me? Now, that's what we want to talk about. Why is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? How is it the power of God unto salvation? And why do I need this power? Well, number one, I need this power because I find another power from which I am unable to break free, and that is the power of sin. It has power over you. It has power over me. It is what pollutes us, Jesus said, and makes us unfit for God. Now, that we need to establish that to begin with because that's what Paul is going to establish. If you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that one of the great verses in the book of Romans is simply this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means that everyone is unfit for God. I am unfit for God. You are unfit for God. And that's something that we need to understand. But Paul says also in verse 17, while the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, he tells us why. He says, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what is this righteousness of God that is revealed? Well, in this verse, 
And in the book of Romans, Paul is building a case for something man doesn't have. Something you don't have, something I don't have. He doesn't have this righteousness. He can't have it by his best efforts. He will never gain it, earn it, acquire it, or come close to it because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't have this righteousness. You don't have this righteousness. Paul didn't have this righteousness. He's speaking of the infinite, unfathomable, unreachable righteousness of God. Let's suppose this pulpit is the righteousness of God. And let's suppose that it's the standard by which we must meet in order to go to heaven. How would you go about meeting this standard? Well, you might stack some hymn books up, and you say each of these hymn books, first, your decision. When you walk down the aisle, that's a hymn book, and you, it's stacking. You want, to, you want to stack the hymn books up, your goodness, you're trying to get goodness, and you want to stack it this high. So you, you got baptized, that's another hymn book. You, you give an offering, that's another hymn book. You can put it on that. You confess your sins, that's another hymn book. You can put it on. You pray every night, you can put another hymn book. You, uh, you come to church every Sunday. Well, you can't put that hymn book up there, but some people might put it up there. So you want to stack those hymn books up until you get them level with God's righteousness. That's what you have an idea. But God's righteousness is not this. God's righteousness is in, in, inconceivable, it's unfathomable, it is unreachable, and that's what we're talking about. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul gives the alternatives. Here are the alternatives Paul talks about in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then in verse 18, he said, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But then in verse 18, he says, also the wrath of God is revealed. Those are the alternatives righteousness or wrath now nobody wants to hear that message our culture doesn't want to hear that message but Paul said there's none of us who is good no not one and so there's either righteousness or wrath that's the message of the book of Romans righteousness you have to measure up to God's righteousness are you are you measuring up can you measure up will you measure up and if you don't measure up the other side of that is wrath now that's what's important here Understanding you need God's righteousness, and you don't have it. Not only do you not have it, but you can't have it. Now, the prevailing culture sees nothing as sin. We talked about that last Sunday. i show you how mixed up the prevailing culture is. In the prevailing culture, if you follow the science, uh, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask is, good, is bad. If you don't wear your mask, it's bad. But in the same culture, uh, abortion is good. In our culture today, a tiny germ is living, and it can hurt you. But a tiny baby is not living. As a matter of fact, if you have followed the news in recent days, the mayor of New York, the new mayor of New York, has said that abortion should be available to a woman up to the day of birth. That's how crooked and messed up and mixed up our culture is today. That is how rotten sin is when it gets in you. It warps your thinking, your logic, your living. But make no mistake, that rottenness is not just in the politician. That rottenness 
is not just in the abortion doctor. It's in you. It's in me. Because Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. And as a result, anything that you offer to God as righteousness is sin. Well, I thought by walking down the aisle, I would be saved. I thought my baptism would make me right with God. I, I thought that was adding it up, stacking it up, making it level. I thought all of these things that I'm doing, all these efforts at my goodness is a good thing. Uh, it, but in fact, my righteousness, offering my righteousness to God to make myself acceptable to Him is a rejection of the gospel, which alone is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. Now let's, let's get straight what the gospel is. We've talked about it for weeks up leading up to Easter. It is the message of Jesus the Nazarene, who was a man attested by God with miracles and signs and wonders. You know that. All the people in that culture knew that. Nevertheless, they put him to death by the hands of godless men, nailing him to a cross. But he could not be held by the power of death because God raised him up again as proof of who he was and what he accomplished. This righteousness is revealed in the gospel. This is God doing something, revealing his righteousness on the one hand, but also on the other hand, my awful unrighteousness, the awful unrighteousness that lives in me. Now let me try to explain something to you. Let me give you a picture. Why will my righteousness never measure up? Why will your righteousness never measure up? When I was in high school, the, the record, the school record for the mile run was 4 minutes and 32 seconds. That's rather slow for the mile, but that was our school record at that time. When I graduated, it was still the record, and it was certainly not my record. About the best that I could do in the mile was about a five-minute mile, which is really slow. Do you know what the world record is in the mile today? Three minutes and 43 seconds. 343.13 seconds. Now, with me running my five minute mile, if I could turn the clock back and be 18 again and say, at 18 I can run a five minute mile, do I ever have hope of catching the guy from Kenya who's running it in three minutes and 43 seconds? No, I do not. I don't have any hope of catching him. But somebody might. One day somebody will break his record. Someday somebody will break it by one-tenth of a second or one hundredth of a second, or maybe even tie his record and they'll meet the standard. They'll, they'll make it. Now think with me about the mile run again. We're thinking about God's righteousness in compared to our own. We thought about one guy running slow and another guy running fast and that this guy never having a chance to catch that guy, but somebody might. But now we want to move that on up to thinking about the mile run, but let's think about me running my five-minute mile and let's think about how fast light travels. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. So how long would it take me, running my five-minute pace, to travel the distance light travels in a single second? It would take me 646 days running mile after mile at my five-minute pace, 
24 hours a day, 646 days for me to run the distance light travels in one single second. And while I ran one five-minute mile, light would have traveled 55,800,000 miles and kept going the whole time. You see, there is no way that I can ever meet that standard. And now you have a, 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 even then, it's a poor comparison of our righteousness against the righteousness of God, which is immeasurable, it is unfathomable, it is unreachable. And so Paul can clearly say, as he drops the plumb line of God's righteousness down beside my life, that I do not measure up, that I am not righteous, that no one is righteous, no, not one. And when I begin to stack the books up in hopes and look at my little stack and say, well, I'm righteous, what I have become is an affront to a God who is infinitely righteous, and I'm trying to stack things up this high. The cross also reveals God's righteousness from another perspective. It reveals what God did that I might be acceptable before him. In other words, I'm unfit for God. I am unfit for God. I'm unfit for God on Sunday. I'm unfit for God on Monday. I'm unfit for God seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and I will be unfit for God every day that I live. I will never be fit for God, not by anything that I will ever do, nor anything that I will ever decide. The only way that I will ever be fit for God is if God fits me for himself. And how did he do that? By substituting the sinless, spotless, unfathomable, unattainable righteousness of Jesus Christ for me on the cross to pay for my sins, which are worse than also I can fathom. Jesus Christ died as my substitute and in my place. And if I think that I can offer my decision, my baptism, my goodness, my offering, my stack of hymn books to make me acceptable with God, then I'm going to be sadly, sadly disappointed when I stand before God. I'm trying to think of the man's name, Coral Gables, Florida, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church, James D. Kennedy who came up with evangelism explosion based on a question that he had heard another pastor ask on one occasion. You've probably heard this question before. He said, suppose you found yourself standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? A lot of people always answer that question by telling you what they've done or what they haven't done because we want to establish the fact as best we can that we are righteous, but we are not, and we will never be. Our only hope is to put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Now let me tell you quickly in closing, Jesus gave us two standards in the book of Matthew. First. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, <clears throat> you want to go to heaven? Here's what you got to do. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's Matthew 5, 20. 
That's what he said. He said, otherwise you can't go into the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds. Now, by the way, the, the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were the record holders for righteousness. They kept a logbook of every day they ran. They, they knew how good they were doing. They, kept, they were legalistic about their righteousness. And, 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 and the normal guy, the everyday guy, the guy on the street would look at the, the scribes and the Pharisees and they say, I can never live like that. And Jesus said, you've got to do better than that. And so the, uh, the, the average ordinary guy would scratch his head then and say, I don't think I'll make it. But Jesus said, you've got to do better than them or you'll never get there. 28 verses later in the same chapter, Jesus said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, here's the scribes and Pharisees. And perfect is way beyond the moon. How am I ever going to get there? Well, the fact is I'm not. I am unfit for God, and the only way I will ever be fit for God is to put my faith in what Jesus did for me on the cross. The Son of God died for me on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever stacked a bunch of him no whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life paul said i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god unto salvation to everyone who believes let's pray